You're listening to Nick Luck Daily. This edition is brought to you by Fitzdares, by the Racehorse Owners Association, and by Thoroughbred Racing Commentaries Global Rankings. Good morning, welcome to the show. Wednesday, September the 20th. Not a nice day here in TW11. Set to get worse as well as I head down the road to Sandown Park for a midweek fixture for Racing TV this afternoon. What's coming up on today's show? We're off to Listowel for the Harvest Festival in the company of Jane Mangan. She, like Frankie Dottori, too expensive to head to the Listowel Harvest Festival. I'm sure she'll hold a view on it nonetheless. We've certainly got some views about the Tim McCarthy case, welfare case, that has been in the news this week. Stay tuned for that. Plus... What about that gallop put up by Ace Impact in Deauville yesterday? The ARC favourite Adrian Cunhas from Jorda Gallo was on a hand to witness that and brings us his report a little later in the programme. Also be hearing from Mick Appleby, who bought the sales topper at yesterday's Tattersalls Island sale in Ferry House. Plus, the croc returns with his update from Hong Kong and news that Zach Purton's stranglehold on the title might be under threat this season if the early skirmishes are anything to go by. And to set everything into sharp relief and context we check in with the man who is in charge of the ukraine stud book alexander malinovsky who is still trying sometimes in vain to keep the flame flickering of thoroughbred horse racing and breeding in the war-torn country but first today why has the gambling commission in a a most unusual move for a government appointed regulator decided to well, to put no finer point upon it, declare war against the Racing Post. The editor of the Racing Post, Tom Kerr, joins me now to explain a bit more. Tom, how how did this level of um, antagonism between your paper and the and the Gambling Commission reach reach boiling point? Uh, well, Nick, uh, to be honest, I don't think there is an antagonism. There certainly isn't from our side. You know, over recent months, we've obviously been covering in detail um the experiences of our readers and racing around affordability checks and you know that's a long-running saga the latest chapters of course this consultation the gambling commission are running on the future shape of affordability checks but it's obviously a huge concern for thousands of our readers huge concern for racing and we've been publishing many many stories many letters many experiences um, from our readers about um, what's been happening to them. And, and that's shared both a range of concerns about how checks are currently being implemented and concerns about the future shape of uh, checks as outlined in the Gambling Commission's consultation. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, the Gambling Commission got in touch, basically inquiring whether we would be uh, willing to carry a letter from them. And, and we replied that we would we always consider letters. You know, we, we, we always welcome input from the Gambling Commission and we regularly seek it. Um, but we also said to them, you know, if, if this letter is going to misrepresent disagreements about our coverage and the experiences of our readers as errors of fact, then we, we, we would probably decline to run it. Uh, and the letter, which was published by the Gambling Commission on their website yesterday, you know, we, we would argue does exactly that. We think it, it dismisses the concerns of our readers. We think it, it simply repeats some assertions from the consultation and the white paper about how checks will work without 
meaningfully engaging with the many, many concerns mm. our readers have about both the current application of these checks and the future shape of them. I'll come back to the kind of personal aspect of this in a few moments, but their central contention, which they repeat in the letter, seems to be first that this will not affect most punters. It's an interesting um, lack of uh, specificity in the word most there. Uh, and also that they they will be frictionless. Now, these are, these are two areas of, of significant contention that, that you've brought up time and time again um, and, and can't really seem to pin them pin them down on i mean what do we understand by most well absolutely so i think there's, there's two issues with the three percent figure to take that one first of all but the first is that uh, it just ignores the fact that a very significant portion of racing punters have already been affected by affordability checks we ran a survey earlier this year we had over 9,000 respondents. We think it's probably the biggest ever survey of racing punters. And 16.6%, one in six of, our, of the respondees reported they'd already been subject to affordability checks. So when Rhodes says that just 3% of accounts will undergo financial risk assessments, we think that's simply ignoring the fact that for many people, these are a present reality that is driving them away from their hobby and having a... a deeply damaging impact on racing as a result. So failing to engage with that, first and foremost, uh, you know, is, is a huge problem. Um, but if we turn to simply the future shape of uh, checks and, and, and we look at that 3% figure, which is quoted in the white paper, I think telling reader, Racing Post readers that only 3% of accounts will undergo risk assessments is, is, is incredibly disingenuous because the 3% figure is reached by looking at all accounts active at any point over an entire year. And we know that that will include numerous irregular or once a year uh, punters. Applying that to Racing Post readers who are the opposite of once a year punters is basically meaningless. So we know that a far greater proportion of, of Racing Post readers than 3% will undergo checks. And, and Andrew wrote, you know, uh, chooses not to engage with that in any way. And he chooses to try and reassure people by saying that only 3% will will undergo checks, which we think is, is, is spurious. The second area is, is around frictionless checks. And, you know, this has been a major area of contention mm. because the government have made clear repeatedly that checks should be frictionless. The gambling minister, Stuart Andrew, has said they will be completely frictionless. That's a verbatim quote. Uh, and anyone reading the Gambling Commission's proposals and indeed the open letter will come to the conclusion that they will not be completely frictionless. Um, so that, there's a disparity between what the government has stated there and what the Gambling Commission are proposing, first of all. But then there's also sort of widespread concerns about how the frictionless checks, when they do work, will work. So, for example, um, the consultation outlines that they'll work by getting credit credit reference agencies to to basically look at your file um but there's been some basic significant questions raised about exactly how that will work the gambling commission says that you need to you know establish people's financial situation you need to establish that they have the funds to afford their betting now many experts we've spoken to cannot fathom how that will work and they definitely cannot fathom how it will work for those who do not have a regular income um, such as the retired who perhaps are betting from yeah. savings. So we've asked repeatedly, um, you know, can this be explained? And in Andrew Rhodes' open letter, he simply says it'll all be fine. Um, you know? 
I know, I know, Tom, that there will be one or two people listening to this going, oh, Luck's got Tom Kerr on. Uh, it's a an insular, navel-gazing, media-loving, for want of a better phrase, big old uh, circle jerk talking about affordability checks and there is no there is no balance to this to this debate at all uh, can you can you explain um the difference between you know a campaign campaigning journalism which is what i can see you're doing and something where you're trying to sort of present every every side of the argument yeah absolutely so you know we generally are you know as, as a newspaper representing racing you know we we, tr- we generally cover stories in as balanced a way as possible but sometimes something comes along which affects our readers and the sport so profoundly that as a newspaper you feel you have an obligation to uh, amplify those concerns and try to uh, achieve a more a beneficial outcome and, and there's many examples over the years of the Racing Post doing this and of course many other newspapers doing this um, you know this is not something which is being driven by, by, by me or by the Racing Post and, and far less as I see occasionally accused by bookmakers we have had a torrent a torrent of letters emails social media posts from our readers I have never seen an issue which engages racing punters so universally and so deeply as this. People are enraged. They are they are absolutely outraged that they are being treated like children effectively and told this is how you can spend your money and if you want to spend any more, you need to let someone look at your bank statements. It, it is genuinely one of the most uh, deeply held feelings that I think I've ever seen from our readers uh, and we would not be doing our job for them or for racing if we did not uh, amplify those views uh, and seek to gain some redress for our readers. Now, if you go back to March, beginning of March, I think March the 8th, 2022, if you go all the way back to that edition, that's when we first checked in with Alexander uh, Malinovsky, who runs the stud book in Ukraine. And he was talking to us about the... Um, wholly unique challenges that he was facing trying to ensure the safety of the the horse population in Ukraine as well as keeping his own his own family safe. Um, Alexander I'm pleased to say joins me this morning uh, to to update us on on the situation. Alexander last time we spoke there was a degree of uncertainty surrounding some of the major studs in Ukraine and their and their occupation and the amount of contact that you'd had with them. Can you can you update me on that now as we speak in um, uh, September 2023, 18 months on from when we first spoke? Yeah. Uh, now, uh, we don't have any connection uh, uh, with the stats that are occupied, that with governmental stats, because we have uh, in Ukraine governmental stats and uh, private stats and private farms with uh, governmental stats we don't have any connection and we don't know the news uh, what's about uh, what is with the horses what is uh, with the breeding uh, feeding and so on and so on but we have the information that uh, the stats are already uh, made like russian uh, property so uh, they are not Ukrainian anymore, as they as they 
state. Uh, one government, one run, one big private state uh, that is situated uh, on the seaside of sea. Uh, I have the connection with the veterinarian, uh, and I ask her uh, to try to to make some uh, identification of the horses that is born uh to try to to have uh, all the info uh, all the information uh, that we need uh, for registering the courses uh, which we don't which we cannot register now but uh when we hope when when this uh, this war ends uh we will have uh, uh the opportunity uh to register the horses and uh, uh to make uh, to to make them thoroughbreds uh, but I know the information from her that uh, they have uh, not very good situation with feeding because uh, the Russian uh, policy is uh, uh, not is against Ukrainian and uh, they want uh, this uh, start to have uh, to receive uh, Russian registration and only then uh, they will. Uh, uh, have give the opportunity to the uh, managers of the start to grow feeding uh, for the horses, and uh, I don't know. Uh, we we cannot help uh, anyhow in this situation because uh, it's uh, it's not possible. Uh, it's not. We can we cannot um, manage anyhow. Uh, uh, also, uh, we know. Uh, that we have a big uh, farm, not stud, but farm. It has approximately 20 mares and uh, quite a big number of uh, horses in training. Uh, the day this uh, farm was uh, weaponed uh, by the rockets, by uh, Shahids and, uh, and so on. So uh, the owner uh, was imprisoned by Russians uh and uh, i know that the um, that the people that worked uh, in the start uh, in the in this farm they uh let the horses uh, go uh because they cannot uh, feed the horses they cannot uh, uh give them water and uh, uh what is now with the horses i don't know but i know that the start, the farm is deoccupied so now it's uh, on the ukrainian territory but the owner uh moved uh, uh the owner uh went to um ukrainian uh, army and uh he's now uh struggling uh for 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 his, for future of our country so i don't know uh and i asked people that uh, are in connect with him uh, i i asked them uh, uh if he has opportunity uh, to to make me a call, but uh, I still don't have uh, any information if some horse is uh, alive uh, or or something else. I don't have any any updates from this stud. So, somehow, Alexander, you you are keeping the the Ukrainian stud book going. I, I'm yes. I'm I'm yes. get I'm I'm guessing there is no there's no sport. There's the, the, is is there any racing still in 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 Kiev or, or that uh, not not possible. No, uh, we have racing in Odessa, in Odessa but yeah. uh, this uh, year Odessa uh, is a big port city, and uh, every day uh, Odessa, uh, city Odessa uh, is um, 
uh, under the rocket attacks. And uh, we decided uh, uh, not, uh, not to send uh, Sarah Bretts uh, on this race course because uh, it's uh, uh, quite dangerous and uh, not, not safe. Uh, and uh, we very hope that next uh, year we will have uh, we can have season uh, racing season because we have uh, uh, some three or four uh, private uh, private owners uh, and uh, we have uh, two big uh, governmental starts uh, that uh, breed race uh, thoroughbreds and uh, we have not a big amount of horses but we we should uh, make races because it's uh, um, we should we should do something with this thoroughbred because uh, it's it's uh, their nature to race and uh, we, we 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 breed them and uh, we want to raise them but we want that the horses uh, uh, be uh, uh, in safety first of all alexander thank you very much for your time um clearly it goes without saying stay safe and and we look forward to speaking to you soon thank you thank you Alexander Malinovsky talking to us from Ukraine where he runs the Ukraine stud book and is with just a very small handful of allies trying to keep racing and what is left of of breeding going in Ukraine. All right, Jane Mangan is welcome to the show, RT and Racing TV broadcaster. Uh, Jane, you are eschewing the delights of the uh, Listole Harvest Festival today. You and and Frankie de Tori, both too expensive for Pat Healy. No, indeed. I actually, uh, I was down there on Monday uh, for a good old National Hunt card, all hurdle cards. And uh, Ruby and Gary did the did the business yesterday on the flat, but today is the feature day. Uh, the Guinness Kerry National is worth a cool, almost 120 grand. Would you believe JP McManus has never won it? It's a staying national. No, it's staying I, I, I wouldn't believe it. Yeah, JP McManus has tried with some really good horses. Even Carlingford Lock got beaten in this race. He's got three runners today in his quest to win it for the first time. Gordon Elliott hasn't won it in a couple of years. I think the last time Gordon Elliott won it was ridden by Lisa O'Neill. Um, and he's got seven contenders in today's race. Uh, they've had 10 mils of rain overnight. They, there's been stormy weather over here, quite a lot of wind and rain. 10 mils overnight brings it to yielding to soft on the National Hunt track, which realistically won't, won't be a disadvantage to most of these horses. One man who has been at the Listole Harvest Festival is Asheen Murphy, and he's been amongst the winners. And it was an, an important victory for him. Just tell us why. Well, he's a native of Kerry, and that's home. Uh, his family would have been there yesterday, and he's had... He had a couple of rides. He had a couple of he had a ride for Aidan O'Brien yesterday as well. But it was actually a really tight. He would have been thrilled to get the the call yesterday because it was a very tight finish between Dragon of Malta, Brave Troop, and Mercurial in a run of the mill handicap. But um, he he for small connections, I think it was Pat O'Donnell trained the horse. I uh, got the the nod by the narrowest of margins, and he showed his strength. And he would have had, I'd imagine, coming home to. To your homeland uh first day riding at the track uh that would have been satisfying i'd say for him and his family well this is what he had to say yeah it was great uh, i spent a lot of time hanging out outside the weighing room asking jockeys for their autographs and um it's nice to be asked to ride here thanks to pat healy and uh, the trainers that put me up and um it's great to get a winner my family are here my grandmother who's in her 80s is here so uh it's fantastic and lip and tuck as well it's a tough track to ride around you probably learned plenty in the first couple of races but your horse is a very willing partner yeah you 
loves uh, loves you know tough competitive racing on soft ground and he won well at Galway and that suited him very well today uh, you know he only just got up on the line but um, the handicapper will be smiling because a uh, few of them I think finished in a, in a um, dead heat uh, more or less so um, good job from him and have you ridden much around Kerry before? No, this is the first time I've uh, had uh, had a ride um, outside of Leopardstown in the Curra. Uh, so it was great to get down here. Sheen Murphy there talking to Dave Keener. Another notable milestone for Patrick Mullins, already a record-breaking uh, amateur rider. And he has had how many winners now, Jane? He rode his 800th winner on Monday evening in the colours of Roger Brookhouse. Um, look, Patrick's a 15 times champion amateur over here. Everybody knows that he's the the professional amongst amateurs, if you know what I mean. He's, his weight is probably the only reason why he's staying amateur. He's six foot tall and his minimum is in and around 11, 3, 11, 4. And uh, he's, he's just, he's, He's won grade ones in professional races, but what he does in bumpers is he he dominates with his dad, and that's what he did on Monday night. Despite missing the start, uh, they still walked, and uh, it 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 look it was a good ride to get back up and win. But I know Patrick is driven by goals, and there's no doubt there's a nice round figure, a good bit away from eight hundred, but not I'd say anybody who's a betting person wouldn't bet against him getting to one thousand. And uh, it's another milestone in the career that has. Had many, well, many milestones, and uh, I hope they'll not, continue not, for a long time to come. He's young. He's not old, is he? He's, what, how old is Patrick Mullins? Oh, 33, and he jokes yeah, so that he'll be riding for the next 20 or 30 years, which, you know, you're riding. He's, he's, gonna, he's got another, he's got to have at least another five or six seasons in him, hasn't he? At least. I'd say as, as long as he's allowed, he'll ride because he just absolutely loves the game. And why not? Because he can be his dad's assistant as well as. Uh, ride some very good horses and bumpers. So um, yeah, it's it's he's a great guy. He's very intelligent. He rides extremely well, and just you know, all round good person. So uh, it's eight hundred and counting for Patrick Mullins. And this is what he had to say. Yeah, um, look, uh, the horses are running great. Um, something I had my eye, eye on for a while. I'd like to get to a, th- a thousand if I could. I know Derek O'Connor and Jamie Cotter have done that over point of points. So. Uh, we have more to do. A thousand is the aim. So, and it wasn't straightforward. He wasn't completely straightforward at the start. No, he, when the tape flew back, uh, he whipped around, and I probably should be more aware for it. Four year first time out, um, but luckily there was no one wanted to make the running, and they went quite slow, so we were able to make up the ground quickly. But the problem was then that we were out of position for what turned into a sprint. So he did very well to win from the position he came from. And it's 800 winners in the track. Like a lot of professionals wouldn't have very good winners in the track. And no, a lot of professionals aren't riding for Willie Mullins. So, um, look, when you're riding for Willie, anything is possible. And um, you know, my um, thought has always been to achieve as much as I can because I have the opportunity to do it. You know, I, the, the opportunity to ride the horses I'm riding week in, week out. Most sellers give the right arm for that. And you're leaving the Jockeys Championship this year, and we're into midway through September. You're having a wonderful run. I think it's a 65% strike rate, 33 winners in the board already this season. Yeah, look, it's um, it's mad, um, and I missed I missed three winners as well when I went off to a friend's wedding. But um, that's you know, it doesn't matter who's riding them. Um, I know Ted Walsh actually had as an amateur beat the leading professional one year, and that's why they brought in the rule. Then we're amateurs only allowed to ride in 21 professional races. So 
Um, I'm not sure how long I'll keep Paul and Jack and Rachel at bay, but uh, we'll enjoy it while we're at the top. For the moment. But these numbers, it's important to recognise them, and you've, you've ridden a lot of good winners, some fantastic horses down through the years, and you're far from retired, but has there been a standout moment so far? Uh, sure, look, to the, the, the ride the likes of Duvan, Underso, Annie Power, um, Alaho, you know, they're, they're phenomenal horses, but um, and Cousin Vinny, obviously, first gentleman winner, but the one that stands out for me, it was um, Uncle Junior winning the Latouche, the real wet year. He had 12-7, bottomless ground, four and a half miles over the banks, and he got up in the last stride to win. And uh, if I could re-ride one race, that's the one I'd enjoy the most. So 800 and the aim is 1,000? That's the aim is 1,000, so hopefully we'll get there before I'm 40, so we'll keep something to, something to aim for. All right, Jane, Luke Coma has until 5 p.m. this evening if he is to lodge an appeal against the withdrawal of his license that occurred at the IHRB's disciplinary panel last week. Now, an article in the Irish Independent suggested that he might appeal because he said he would fight to clear his name, uh, but no appeal has been lodged as yet, and I'm speaking to you at half past nine on Wednesday morning. Yeah, um, again, we'll wait till after the deadline. It just wouldn't surprise anyone if he waited till the very last moment. Murmurings around the racetracks of Ireland is that he's he was strongly considering an appeal, but maybe he was getting advice that might have led to uh, a change of heart. Yeah, it's it's if he does appeal, I, I just don't see how I, I see the IHRB having done a very good job on their side. I, it appears they have a watertight case. It appears this is dragged out and they have been able to hold their ground. So um, if he appeals, I I don't see how he, he wins or gets any kind of a a yield on his penalty, a penalty that many consider to be on the easy side anyway. Janice, worth touching for a little while on the case involving the trainer Tim McCarthy, who trains um, in, in Surrey. A small uh, stable. He was formerly a very successful Cheltenham Festival winning amateur rider before he turned his hand to training. And he's often received horses that have come from bigger yards that have had uh, issues. And he's trained for a long time for the prominent owner, Alan Spence, who was the original owner of a horse that is now the subject of you know, quite a quite a disturbing case that the Racing Post have been charting this week. Uh, just tell me a little bit about where we are at with this case now. Yes, so Tim McCarthy, um, he's been charged with breach of Rule D1, which is failing to take all reasonable steps to ensure the safety and welfare of a horse in his care. Okay, so just to give you some background, the horse in question is Mind Your Own Business, who had eight runs for David Simcock that yielded three wins. He had nine runs for Roger Varian, which yielded five wins. And then he was off for a period of... 1,778 days through injury before coming back and having three runs for Tim McCarthy. Now, he had three runs, February of 21, where he finished seventh, March of uh, 21, where he finished seventh, and then he took a fatal fall at uh, Lingfield in April of 21, and his third run for Tim McCarthy. This is a little bit of a he-said-she-said case because... In evidence, jockey Martin Dwyer, who had ridden him in his two start, first two starts for Tim McCarthy, said the horse uh, had taken a misstep. He felt that there was something seriously wrong. Um, McCarthy refutes this. He said he's very disappointed in what Martin has said. He says he felt let down by Martin. 
about all of this. And he said the horse has never taken a lame step. Now, I think this is an unusual case because to say that the trainer didn't take all uh, steps to ensure the safety and welfare of a horse in his care, the horse was after two runs after the injury layoff, uh, of which he finished fine. Uh, Kieran Fallon was on board when he fractured his shoulder at Lingfield. Um, I I don't I don't see how uh, I I'd find I find it difficult to see how this case can stick against Tim McCarthy when he's had two runs and the horse finished fine and he he suffers a fatal injury on his third run. Yeah, I mean this all hinges on whether the the panel believes Martin Dwyer's evidence that he told the trainer that he felt there was something seriously wrong with the horse. And indeed, whether there was something seriously wrong with the horse. If the trainer has brought a sound horse home from his second run and that that horse was proven, as far as you can, to be sound when he took him to the races the next time, then I suspect it is quite difficult for this case to stick. There is a wider issue, though, isn't there, Jane, as to whether a horse who has been off the track for nearly five years should be making a return to the race course. I get what you're saying, but that's why there are trainers have a license. They go through procedures to be able to like the, everybody turns to say the vet this, the vet that. If a trainer can't tell whether a horse is lame or not, if a trainer can't tell whether a horse is feeling pain or not, then they they shouldn't be training anyway. So that I, I think if a, if a trainer gets a license, they shouldn't have to turn to a vet at every five seconds. But anyway, if Martin Dwyer felt what he did and that was reported to the BHA, which it was, then why didn't the BHA send down a vet prior to his next run? I think you, think you touched on, on an interesting point there. If there is a question mark over a horse's soundness and suitability and every man, woman and dog can see that he's had five years off the track, if there is a question about his suitability for racing, why not ring the trainer and say, right, we've had this issue here. Can you uh, send us footage of the horse trotting up at home? Can we make sure that he is suitable to run, please? Some There should have been a red flag in the system saying, right, we need to do an additional check or balance on your horse before he, he runs again. Yeah, that makes 100% sense. If Martin Dwyer is a very experienced rider, um, so you would, like, regardless of experience, but you definitely take his opinion on board there there are BHA vets at every race meeting so wouldn't it be pertinent to trot him up before hmm. before the race Dwyer said he felt there was something seriously wrong with mind your own business in that penultimate run and reported his concerns to BHA officials resulting in the horse being inspected by vets now when when that inspection took place there was either something seriously wrong with the horse or there wasn't and a BHA vet should have been able to determine that if there is something seriously wrong with the horse, any vet worth their salt can determine that. Correct? Yeah. So right. where's the issue with Tim McCarthy? So so if, if the vet has cleared that horse and said there isn't something seriously wrong with the horse, then has there been communication between the BHA and Tim McCarthy between that penultimate run and that final fatal run? And if there hasn't been communication between the BHA and Tim McCarthy between those two runs when they noticed he was entered again, then I can only ask, why not? Exactly. And that's that's something that we don't know. And I'd imagine that'll be something that'll be answered when all of this comes to uh, a conclusion. I, I am fully supportive of the idea that, you know, trainers must be left to make judgment calls on 
the suitability of horses to race. But this is quite an extreme case. And we've seen one or two of these in recent years, and they tend not to end terribly well. Yes. I, and the, I, and I the, the sport has a duty to protect these animals. And I don't think you can just say, yeah, get on and do what you want. You can't run a lawless, unregulated system, which which then will place horses at increased and unnecessary risk. I don't disagree with that. Now, there will always be an exception to the rule, and some listeners might recall some exceptions to the rule. I do remember Willie Mullins bringing back a horse after four years and winning with it first time up at Tremor, uh, maybe a year or two ago, but they're, they're few and far between. Um, look, it's very hard to dispute if somebody has put in a lot of time, effort and money into a horse to get them back and they pass all the veterinary checks and they're doing everything. They have an appetite for it at home. It's very hard to say that you can't run. So I don't think we're in a position to say what people can or cannot do. But if a horse has suffered a significant injury, and I don't know the nature of Mind Your Business's injury, uh, then maybe it's a judgment call case on case rather than point blank saying if you miss a thousand days you can't come back because yeah. in that instance you might have a case where people rush a horse back to run them within the threshold and that is also doing the wrong thing i i i feel that my two my two sentiments can sit side by side that as, as i'm reading the case at the moment I, i'm somewhat in your camp that I, I don't really see how tim mccarthy can be blamed exclusively for the turn of events however i i feel that the, the regulations on bringing horses back at that advanced stage after that amount of time off could easily be tightened okay so we take our steps ever closer to the arc and we've got to be careful because it's a bit earlier this year just that that very first few days in october um, check in with our French correspondent, Adrian Cunhas from Jour de Gallo. Uh, Adrian, important day for ARC favourite Ace Impact yesterday. Uh, he was put through his paces in a, in a crucial workout. How did he get on? Uh, hello. He worked very, very well. Uh, trainer, assistant trainer and jockey were very satisfied uh, both from the, the behaviour and, and, and the style of, 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 of his gallop. So um, all system go, it looks very, very, very promising before the arc. And uh, they say the horse is getting stronger and stronger. And now I would say they found ways to uh, handle with his... Um, Anxiety, you know, like he's a bit stressed. He is he, he's not laid back at all. He's the opposite of that. And he's also with a lot of blood. And so now they found the process, you know, how to make him uh, go down in terms of pressure. And and the horse is really learning how to how to handle his, his own energy, both in training and and at the track. And what did Christian Demuro say? Uh, he says that it's probably like maybe his best chance. He have ridden the arc and he's, he's really, really extremely happy. And really, the horse was, I think, uh, quite impressive. And so it's a, it's a, it's a, it's 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 a massive challenge. But they're really confident that the six week, six weeks before since his last trade and the arc are not a problem at all. And uh, and uh, Jean-Claude Rouget seems extremely confident, uh, like way more confident than he usually before the arc. 
So, uh, you know, he's not the kind of trainer that I was going to brag off before the big races. He's playing a bit shy before the big events. And he sounds surprisingly confident. So we, we shall see. Maybe it's 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 a quite open art this year. Maybe it's 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 less strong than probably uh, a few editions we've known uh, in the past. So maybe that's why also he's he's quite confident. Of course, um, there are a few very good horses, but I think this year many people also come and try their chance because because they think that it's quite open to to have a place also in the arc. Okay. What do we think the ground is going to be uh, come arc day? So yesterday's the clerk of the course, uh, Charles de Cordon, uh, talked to the press and he says there is only two raining episodes that are uh, in the forecast before the race and not big rain. So it should be good to soft. So for very strange reasons, back in the days, they decided to build the racetrack between a river and a wood with a wind corridor so Longchamp can be a bit in, unstable with in terms of weather sometimes but uh, living in Chantilly which is not far from Paris and, and, and looking at the weather forecast every day it's quite hot and there is not a lot of rain so I think that's really uh, high probability to have a good to soft ground which is which is a big a big change for many horses that could run. Like, a lot of horses, uh, they really would be in trouble if the ground was very soft or heavy, like it is sometimes in Longchamp in October. And I think, like, horses like Sim Camille, Luxembourg, and, and the Japanese filly through seven days, that's really extremely important for them that the ground won't be heavy. All right, that was Adrian Cunhas. Jane is with me. It sounds like that Ace Impact Gallop was very good, Jane. Uh, have you got any other ARC detail to fill in for us? Well, I have a quiz question for you, and if the listeners have the answer, I'll be very impressed. I read in the Sporting Life yesterday that Aidan O'Brien has sent no less than 33 euros, 30 individual three-year-olds, to the ARC this century, yet only one of them has made the first three. Can you tell me who was the one three-year-old that Aidan O'Brien has sent to the arc that has placed in the race? The one three-year-old of it found? No, that was the year Ryan got caught in all the traffic and she finished midfield and she went on to win it the next year. But this is pertaining to continuous. If he were to run in this year's race, the stats are very much against him. Because the last Aidan O'Brien three-year-old and the only one to place in the race was High Chaparral back in 2002. Ah, finished third, yes? Yes. Wow, that's a that's a that's that's good stuff. I like that. Courtesy of the Sporting Life, we'll give them the credit where it is due. But the race, do you know, it's the 1st of October. It's coming around pretty quick. And uh, today's Jour de Gallo is awash with Ace Impact work and Christiane de Muro and um, Jean-Claude Rouget expressing their satisfaction with the current 3-1 to favourite but Hookham be the flame Westover Emily Upjohn shaping up to be a proper race isn't it Alright Tattersall's Ireland sales topper yesterday 190,000 euros daughter of Lope de Vega where's this filly headed she's headed to the base of Mick Appleby for the connections of Big Evs with whom Mick has done so well this season Flying Childers winner Royal Ascot winner and Molcom winner Mick's with me now. Mick, um, great to top the sale. Uh, what did you like about this, Philly? 
Well, personally, I've not even seen her. Um, but I mean, Connor, who obviously sourced big Evs, um, he'd, he'd been and had a look at her and everything. And I mean, the breeding's pretty good. Um, and just a nice, sort of strong filly. So he, he sort of recommended her. Uh, is she, I haven't looked. Is she, is she bred to be a fast filly, even though she's by a Myling Stallion? Yeah, I mean, I would think she. I don't think she's going to probably be in five furlong. I mean, I would imagine she probably end up being six, seven. I would think. Um, but I mean, obviously, until we had to get her in training and see what what she can do, then we'll know more then. But for the same owners who are obviously putting a lot of investment into the yard, I mean, how much is this is this changing the whole shape of your operation? Yes, I mean, obviously, it's changing a lot. Sort of with the two year, we're having with the, to the decent two year olds. Um, so I mean, hopefully, like we can get more two year olds um, next year. Hopefully. Um, tell me a little bit about the the plan for Big Evs. He was very very good in the Flying Childers the other day. Do you think that's as good as he's been? Yes, I mean, I mean, like on the sectional times. I mean, like. I mean, like a few people have said to me on the sectional times, on the first sort of two furlongs, there's no way he should have lasted home. So, I mean, obviously, he's burnt them off in the first two furlongs and nothing's got near them. Like, I mean, it's absolutely remarkable that he's still got, gone and won and won impressively. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that's his best performance so far. On probably ground that still wasn't perfect for him. Mm. And, and is, is the Breeders' Cup still in your in your mind? Yeah, I think mean, that's a definite where, where we're going to go now. Um, I had a chat with Paul afterwards, and I think mean, that's the definite rule that we're taking now, straight to the Breeders' Cup. Okay, and so that um, sort of fairly tight bend round uh, five five furlong Santa Anita, will that be okay for him? Yes, I can't see it being a problem. Um, we're going to—I uh, mean, obviously he's never raced round a bend, um, but we're going to go—we're going to take him for a race course gallop. Um, and so he gallops around the bend and galloping with a couple more horses around the bend so that he's used to the bend then well fingers crossed he can he can put up a bold showing thanks a lot Mick yeah okay cheers Mick so Big Evs is off to America we're off to Hong Kong and J.A. McGrath Nick if you take a glance at the latest Hong Kong jockey standings it has an unusual look to it Topping the list with six winners is former Sydney champion Hugh Bowman, who, of course, has a place in Australian turf history as the regular jockey for Winx, winner of 37 races, her last 33 in succession. Winx is retired, now a broodmare, her first progeny to go to public auction in the new year, but Bowman is still going great guns. Hughie is now 43 years of age, and he's only three wins away from recording his first 100 winners in Hong Kong. The way he's riding, the ton should come up before the end of the month. Usually we see Zach Purton leading the list right from day one, but Zach, per- Zach Purton's fans needn't despair. He's in second place with four winners on the board, and he too is in great form. And don't forget, the new season has only just started. Uh, we've got 86 meetings to go. It's very early doors. We've got eight races at Happy Valley today. By the way, field sizes are still a little light by Hong Kong standards. A number of factors are at play here. No doubt a boost in the local horse population is required, but as the new season unfolds, rest assured the fields will get bigger. 
The best of Bowman's six rides is Melbourne Hall, who's trained by David Hall in race five at 2.15 UK time. It's a class four sprint over six furlongs. Arguably the best race on the card, however, is the last race, a class two over 16.50 metres, a mile, in which a horse called Helene Feeling will have plenty of admirers and followers to be ridden by Karis Teton for Danny Shum. Helene Feeling is a British import. He won at Epsom and Doncaster when trained in the UK by Michael Bell. He was known then as Indian Dream. Long term, he's being aimed at the Derby in March, but he has his work cut out here, starting from stall 11 in the 12-runner field. I prefer Rise Brethren to be ridden by Purton. This is an interesting runner. Formerly with Joseph O'Brien, he ran second in the Britannia behind Perotto a couple of years ago. He was known then as Liffey River. Well, he's done well in Hong Kong. He's now with Jamie Richards, and I think he'll win the finale. Race 8, number 6, Rise Brethren to beat number seven Galaxy Witness, trained by Casper Founds, and throw in Helene Feeling number 11 uh, if you want to uh, put one in multiples. Another one to follow is in race seven, number seven, All Greek to Me, trained by David Hayes, ridden by Luke Ferraris. Uh, was due to run last week, got kicked on the way to the start by his lead pony, believe it or not, but he's okay and he'll take his place. I think he'll go in this time, he's well drawn. Race 7, number 7, all Greek to me, take him in a tote swinger with number 3, Majestic Knight. That's all on the Hong Kong beat this week. I'll have more for you next week. Okay, thanks to all my guests today. Jane Mangan is still here and she's got a tip for you. It has to be the Kerry National, doesn't it? Can't leave Pat Healy and the team down. Noteworthy, just as I flick onto the race, that the top weight and the Galway plate hero, Ash Three Meadow, is now a non-runner. And Tully Begg as well. So Gordon Elliott has two out, which means Fergal O'Brien's Captain Catastock gets in, the UK traveller. Fortunately, it won't be a waste of travel for him and Liam Harrison. He's going to get in down the bottom, but I'm not going for him. I am going for an Elliott runner the fact that the ground has gone soft will help Gevre, the horse that was second to Aya Maximus, only beaten a length in the Irish Grand National. He's had a prep run at Kilbegan. He's only got 10-9 on his back and Brian Hayes has ridden him in those two starts. I think Gevre could run a huge race for those connections at the 425, the feature race, the Guinness Kerry National. All right, Jane, thanks so much. Thank you very much for listening. I'm off to Sandown Park this afternoon. I am going to get drenched. That was Wednesday, September the 20th. I'll see you again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Nick Luck Daily, brought to you in association with Fitzdares, the Racehorse Owners Association, and Thoroughbred Racing Commentary. Mm-hmm.